We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Okay, good evening, everybody. We, we begin our service at FBC tonight. Thank you for coming and persevering with us. Let's turn our Bibles to Second Chronicles, please. Second Chronicles, which would, in chronological order of the, uh, of the writings um, in the Old Testament, uh, sit, the historical writings would sit at the end of it, if you were reading in a Hebrew Bible, Second Chronicles 36. Then the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and made him king in his father's place, in Jerusalem. Pause for a second. Remember, Josiah had died in the battle with Pharaoh Necho and uh, wasn't supposed to really be out there on the field of battle, but he was. He had a lapse of judgment, it seems. Jehoahaz was 23 years old, verse 2 says, when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. Now the king of Egypt deposed him at Jerusalem, and he imposed on the land a tribute of 100 talents of silver and a talent of gold. Then the king of Egypt made Jehoahaz's brother Eliakim king over Judah and Jerusalem and changed his name to Jehoiakim. And Necho took Jehoahaz, his brother, and carried him off to Egypt. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against him and bound him in bronze fetters to carry him off to Babylon. By the way, that took quite a long while. There was a siege involved there. Nebuchadnezzar also carried off some of the articles from the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his temple at Babylon. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim, the abominations which he did and what was found against him, indeed they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. Then Jehoiachin, his son, reigned in his place. Jehoiachin was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem three months and ten days, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord, like those that went before him. And at the turn of the year, King Nebuchadnezzar summoned him and took him to Babylon with the costly articles from the house of the Lord and made Zedekiah, Jehoiakim's brother, king over Judah and Jerusalem. Actually, the siege I was thinking of was of Zedekiah. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. There's another 11-year period. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord his God and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. And he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear an oath by God, but he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. Moreover, all the leaders of the priests and the people transgressed more and more according to all the abominations of the nations and defiled the house of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending them because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets, 
until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, till there was no remedy. Therefore he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on young man or virgin, on the aged or the weak. He gave them all into his hand. And all the articles from the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and his leaders, all these he took to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious possessions. And those who escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon, where they became servants to him and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Now, this is fast-forwarding quite a distance in time down toward the end of that 70 years. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. Now look at the next page in your Bible, Ezra and see how it's organically connected to Second Chronicles. It says there in Ezra, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Here he makes this proclamation. All the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord God of heaven has given me. He's commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem. He asks who among his people uh, will go, you know, will be with him, will go up to Jerusalem and build a house. And whoever, verse 4, whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, goods and livestock, besides the freewill offerings for the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. And so God did indeed stir up his heart. He called Cyrus and Isaiah his servant, ahead of the fact that, ahead of the time even Cyrus was born, called him his servant. So God used the secular king to accomplish a great purpose in uh, the history of the nation of Israel. Uh, But sad, uh, isn't it, to see all the devastation and destruction brought upon themselves by their disobedience to God. And there's no question that they uh, suffered the fate that was deserved according to the promise of God in the Old Testament in the law. All right, thus concludes Second Chronicles. We have one more chapter to go in Song of Solomon 8, and then that will complete our reading of Scripture as far as I recall. So, neato. Uh, thank God for that. Jansen, we're looking forward to the word, so uh, go ahead and bring it to us, please. Thank you. Good evening. I invite you to open your copies of God's word to 1 Timothy. You might remember, in conclusion to our series on evangelism back in December, I taught uh, two, uh, two times from 1 Timothy chapter 2, primarily verses 1 through 6, on the subject matter of praying for the lost. And um, that kind of concluded our series on evangelism, at least for the time being. It doesn't mean we'll not go back to that topic. In fact, it should be uh, at the forefront of our minds often, uh, thinking about uh, the need to be evangelizing. But we're laying that to rest for the time being. 
And as I was kind of considering where to go next, I really wanted to begin working through a book of the Bible, some more expositional kind of preaching style. And so I decided, well, I might as well just back up one chapter and begin in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy. And so that's what we're going to do, is uh, we're going to begin this evening a series of expositional teachings through the whole epistle of 1 Timothy. I've never uh, taught through 1 Timothy as a whole. I've taught passages here and there. But I'm looking forward to studying uh, this epistle with you and sharing what I learned from my study study, uh, with you in the weeks ahead and months ahead as the Lord sees fit. Now, this evening, we'll not cover all the background information to the epistle. Uh, This evening, instead, uh, we'll consider the date and the location and other prominent uh, data and background information in depth at various times throughout our study as it's applicable to the passages that we're looking at. However, this evening we'll focus our attention uh, just primarily on the first two verses of the letter, the greeting to, uh, to the recipient of the letter. In these first two verses, we find uh, what is comprised, the identification of the author, the recipient, and the author's greeting. And although perhaps in your reading through Scripture, perhaps uh, you have something like what's on the back table, a a reading, you know, a plan for reading through the whole Bible, and perhaps when you get to a book like this, uh, perhaps a a letter written by Paul, you kind of just quickly pass over those greeting words, those kind of uh, beginning introductory notes without much consideration of the significance of them on the rest of, of the letter or book that you're reading. And uh, I'm guilty of that at times as well in my own personal reading. But if we slow down and really consider the greeting, we'll find that when we look closer at it, it reveals that these comments comments play an important role in setting the tone for the whole epistle. Just a careful look at it this evening will reveal that The authority behind this letter is one that comes from an apostle who is commanded by God to be a herald of the gospel. And so we'll begin this evening by looking at verses 1 and 2, and let me read that for you, and then we'll look at it more closely in the time that we have ahead. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, By the commandment of God, our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. Verse 2, to Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God, our Father, and Jesus Christ, our Lord. Before we go any further this evening, let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer, asking him to help us uh, through this passage this evening. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We pray in the Lord now as we just consider a few words put together into phrases and statements and sentences, Lord, may we consider the significance of it, Lord, and how it even applies to our, our own lives this week, the months ahead. It, has it uh, perhaps just causes us to think more correctly about your word, change our behavior and our thoughts. Lord, guide us, we pray, through your spirit. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Now we see here very clearly that the author is identified as Paul in verse 1. Some theologians, uh, less conservative ones, try to debate that, but it's pretty very clear that Paul is the author here, and we take it uh, 
as it is, face value, that he is the author of this letter. The rest of verse 1 is not simply more biographical information for interest of the reader. Rather, Paul's reference to the office of apostle signifies the authority from God by which he preaches and teaches, and in this case, writes. Paul identifies himself in verse 1 as an apostle of Christ, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, you may ask yourself this question, and perhaps you know the answer already, but it's worth reviewing. What was an apostle of Christ? What is an apostle of Jesus Christ? Well, the word apostle means sent one or messenger. The word is used most often in the New Testament in reference to the apostles of Christ. However, we see on occasion that this word elsewhere refers to those who are simply a messenger or a representative of a church being sent out on, a, on a, some kind of task with a message to carry perhaps to another church or to some other, um, to some other Christian figure. However, um, in this case, in verse 1, when Paul uses the word apostle, he is using it to reference someone specifically commissioned by Jesus Christ to testify of the resurrection of Christ and to herald the gospel of Jesus Christ, and of which he was one of these kinds of apostles. Now, you may ask kind of further into this question, well, how do we know what a genuine apostle of Christ is? Paul puts himself out as an apostle of Jesus Christ, but does he have anything to back himself up on, to verify that he truly is who he says he is, to give himself this title? Well, there's commonly agreed upon three indispensable characteristics of an apostle of Christ. And these characteristics are necessary to legitimize one's claim to be an apostle of Christ in the New Testament. And the significance of these characteristics is that they are unique and limited only to a few select men that we see in the New Testament. Furthermore, it is essential that all three of these characteristics be met to be considered a genuine apostle of Christ. You can't have two of them and leave the third one out or leave the first and have the second two. All of them are necessary to authenticate the claim of apostleship. And these characteristics are what distinguishes these kind of what we might call small a apostles, simply the ones that are messengers or representatives of the church, of a church, versus what you may call a big A apostle, a capital, you know, A apostle of Jesus Christ. And these characteristics distinguish the two as we see them in the New Testament. The first characteristic of an apostle of Christ is that he must be an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. He must be an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. No apostle of Christ had an exception to this requirement. Even Paul, though commissioned sometime later than the other 12 apostles, was an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. Of course, he wasn't there at the very beginning, when the others were commissioned uh, and uh, sent out. He wasn't there when uh, Christ ascended into heaven, and he wasn't there even at the beginning of the church 
when Peter preaches and the Holy Spirit comes down. He wasn't there for this, but we do know that with careful consideration of the Scripture and what Paul says about his own experiences and uh, time uh, with Christ, that he truly was an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. Paul is careful to make sure that his audience understands that he saw the resurrected Christ with his physical eyes. Of course, at Paul's conversion, which simultaneously functions as his commissioning to go out by, uh, through the commandment of Christ to be his apostle, he both heard in a physical voice and saw a physical light, which we might understand to be the glory of the resurrected Christ. Second, the second characteristic of an apostle of Christ is that he is directly appointed by Jesus Christ. Not only must he be an eyewitness of Christ, the resurrected Christ, but also be directly appointed by Jesus Christ. No church, no ecclesiastical institute, nor any of the other apostles of Christ, the other uh, 11, had the authority to select an apostle of Christ. Now, you may be thinking in your head, well, that, what about the time where they cast lots to determine the replacement for Judas? Well, as we consider that, uh, we might realize that even in that instance, it was, it was not simply the apostles who were selecting. They were casting the lots, uh, demonstrating that they themselves were not the sole uh, the sole choosers in that sense, the selectors of the apostle, but uh, putting the, the uh, responsibility upon uh, uh, the Lord in this matter. An apostle of Christ must necessarily be sent and can only be sent by Christ himself. This is the reason for Paul's emphatic insist- insistence on the point that he was chosen to be an apostle by Christ himself and not by any man or group of men. If you uh, consider Galatians chapter 1 just for a moment, and uh, why don't we turn there actually, we'll look there just for just a few minutes. Galatians chapter 1, we see this point being made by Paul as he defends his apostleship and his gospel. Beginning in Galatians chapter 1, verse 11, Paul writes this, But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, meaning it's not originated from man. Verse 12, For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 13, For you heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Verse 15, but when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Here we see his commissioning his command by God to be an ambassador, one sent out to proclaim the message to the Gentiles. He writes, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. He didn't go to them to be authenticated by them. Rather, he, he stayed a while 
uh, apart from them and to also further verify that this apostleship was from God and not from man. As we consider this second characteristic, we uh, understand that Paul himself was commissioned by Jesus Christ himself. We see that in Acts chapter 9, this conversion yet commissioning at the same time. The third characteristic of an apostle of Christ is his ability to confirm his mission by miraculous signs. An apostle of Christ was endowed by the Holy Spirit with power to confirm his message and message, mission and message by performing miraculous signs. The ability to perform miracles along with the previous two characteristics would confirm the legitimacy of his claim to apostleship. Inconsequentially, it would confirm the message that he proclaimed as well. The power promised to the 11 apostles in Acts chapter 5, or 1, verses 5 through 8, the beginning of, uh, there at the beginning of the church, or just prior to the beginning of the church, was necessary for the success of their witness, including what uh, also included the power to perform signs and miracles. The significance of this characteristic of being able to perform miracles is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, where Paul writes that the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. And so when Paul here in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, makes this claim to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, he is claiming to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ, He is making the claim of having been directly appointed by Jesus Christ, therefore carrying the authority by which Christ spoke himself, so that the very words of the apostles were the commandments of God. And thirdly, Paul's claim to apostleship meant that he had the ability to perform miraculous signs, and there is obviously a verification of that, of his ability Uh, to do that. Note, though, uh, just as a side note this evening, there are no apostles of Christ today. No one can meet all three of these characteristics mentioned above. No one can claim to have seen the resurrected Christ. No one can make the claim to be directly appointed by Jesus Christ nor the ability to perform miraculous signs. And so we don't uh, take the belief that there is any kind of apostles of Christ today, uh, nor any kind of apostle that has uh, the ability to uh, make a claim of having received new revelation from God. Now we see in verse 1 that Paul goes on to say that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment, of God our Savior, by the commandment of God our Savior. Paul makes clear that his apostleship originated in a command from God. Paul did not place himself in a position of authority as an apostle, nor did any other person commission him as an apostle of Christ. His commission came by commandment 
from God. Paul's ministry originated from this command. The term command is used of royal directives to be obeyed without equivocation. Now, Paul viewed himself as one under orders, often referring to himself as a servant of Christ or a bondservant, and he saw that it was his duty to be a herald of the gospel. He also saw his appointment to the apostleship as God's will. Colossians chapter 1, verse 1 tells us that. We see, as we noted just a moment ago, that he was converted and commissioned by Christ in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 19, and specifically tasked to preach to the Gentiles, as we saw in Galatians chapter 1. Now, when Paul uses this idea of a commandment, it does not suggest that it's if God is tugging him into a kind of office or position against his own will. It stresses, rather, the divine source of his appointment in order to gain support from the church for the directives he was going to give Timothy. Paul willingly submitted himself under this command, seeing it even as a, a, uh, an honor to be able to serve in this capacity. Now, perhaps when I just read it, um, if you didn't look closely, you may have thought that Paul said something like this, by the commandment of God and Savior. But that's not what it says, does it? Look at your Bibles. It says, God, our Savior. This phrase, God, our Savior, may first glance, be kind of a puzzling title. Usually when we talk about Savior, that title is given to the second person of the triune God, Jesus Christ, our Savior. But that is not what the text says. It doesn't simply say Jesus Christ, our Savior, or God and Savior, speaking of the first person and the second person of the Trinity. And this is not the only text that presents the idea of God as Savior in Scripture, although it is kind of a unique title to the pastoral epistles. It does show up elsewhere in Colossians 1.27, and later on in chapter 2, when we get there, we'll see that this same idea is, is uh, described and written about in chapter 2, verse 3. Of course, through all, throughout the Old Testament, we see this idea, too, as God being the Savior, even Mary, in Luke chapter 1, 47, calls God her Savior. As I said, we commonly attach the title of Savior to the second person of the Trinity, but God the Father can rightly be called Savior as well. The ultimate source of salvation is God, the Father, and he planned it from eternity 2 Thessalonians chapter 2.13 tells us that uh, from eternity, from the beginning, he has uh, planned our salvation. Though Christ is the one who suffered unjustly on the cross, so that salvation might be possible and the forgiveness of sins might be possible, it is God who saves. So we can rightly say, and Paul rightly writes in 1 Timothy 1.1 that God is our Savior. And we ought to think of it in that way as well. 
Now, the motivation behind Paul's ministry lies, we see, in the hope of the return of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 1. Paul writes, An apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God, our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. We see that the Lord Jesus Christ is also the source of this commandment given to Paul to be an apostle. And Paul calls here in this instance Jesus Christ as our hope. He is our hope. Why was Paul so willingly uh, submitting to persecution and rejection as an apostle of Christ? Why were Christians of the new of the early church willing to suffer and die because Jesus Christ was their hope. Jesus Christ is not only the only is not only the hope for Paul, but to all who believe in him. The reason that we stand firm in our faith and should, the reason that we willingly take on suffering and persecution, rejection is not because we simply just guess that Jesus Christ is coming again. It is a sure hope. This idea of hope here is not just of perhapsness, if I can use, make a word up. Like it may happen, it is a sure thing. He is our hope. He is our, it is a guarantee that it will happen. The hope of salvation rests in the cross work of Christ and his resurrection, which promises our own resurrection one day. Paul then writes, telling us and identifying for us the recipient of, our, of this letter. Paul identifies that he is writing to an individual person, although the contents of this epistle will be spread and taught to the rest of the church, but its primary uh, and original audience and recipient is Timothy. Verse 2 tells us, Paul says in verse 2, that it is to Timothy, a true son in the faith. Timothy is linked to Paul in Acts chapter 16, verse 3, and though it's not exactly clear that he was the apostle's convert directly. He may have been, but it's, it's not uh, clearly spelled out. It is apparent that he became Paul's trusted assistant. We see this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 2. So that Paul could say that Timothy served with him as a son with his father. Look with me at Philippians chapter 2 just for a moment. Philippians chapter 2, verse 22, Paul says this. Beginning in verse 19, Philippians 2.19, But I trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to send Timothy to you shortly, that I may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character, that is Timothy's, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. 
Here in 1 Timothy 1 and Philippians 2 and other places, we see that Paul genuinely saw Timothy as a son in the faith, one of his own um, offspring, so to speak, one who shared a similar faith, similar practice, and similar ministry as a servant of the gospel. Paul here injects in 1 Timothy 1, verse 2, a note of intimacy and fatherly love, calling him his true son in the faith. But this is also a pronouncement of Timothy's genuine faith in Christ. It's not simply just an identification of who he is. It's a, it's a description of the kind of man that Timothy was. Even thinking back to Philippians chapter 2, which we just read, where Paul writes, you know, all seek their own and no one the things of Christ Jesus. But there is one amongst others, but Timothy, his proven character showed that he was concerned with these matters of Jesus Christ, not desiring his own ways or the things of this world, not like our brother James talked about this morning, being one spotted or stained by the world, but separated for the work of Christ. We know that Timothy's mother and grandmother played an influential role in teaching him the scriptures. Second Timothy chapter 1 talks about this, and I'll just read that here. Second Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, Paul writes this concerning Timothy, I thank God, whom I, whom I serve with a pure conscience, as my forefathers did, as without ceasing I remember you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also." What a word of commendation of Paul or Timothy's character. I wonder, even in light of uh, the recent passing of fine Christian people, one like Pastor Odell, how, how will they be remembered? Well, I can almost guarantee in the instance of Pastor Odell that he will be remembered as one having the genuine faith one who served the Lord with faithfulness. Perhaps that'll cause you to stop and ponder for a moment. What is my kind of identifying feature, characteristics? Characteristic Is it my occupation or is it my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Is it my skills or my hobbies or my, you know, uh, the things I'm good at or is it my faith in Jesus Christ. We ought to strive to be those who are recognized to be ones who have genuine faith. That adjective describing the kind of faith is important. There are many who profess faith in Jesus Christ, but their character and their conduct may cause us to call into question the authenticity of that. I hope we are like Timothy, who when others 
in this instance, Paul look upon him, there's no doubt of the genuineness of the faith of Timothy. So much so, so much faith and trust in the genuineness of it that Paul is entrusting to Timothy these very important instructions to teach to the church in Ephesus. Not only was this probably a means of, or a bolstering to the confidence of Timothy to hear this from his his father in the faith, but it also would have been a means of of uh, revealing to the church that Timothy was someone to be listened to. Now. When we consider this kind of qualifying statement, a true son in the faith, in the faith, this phrase in the faith or prepositional phrase here refers to the objective bodies, body of truths in the Christian faith. It's not as if um, Timothy ha- simply has faith, but he has faith in something specific, the very teachings of the scriptures. Paul is setting him up as an example of what a true genuine or genuine child in the faith looks like. The church was to recognize this as the apostle's stamp of approval on Timothy's doctrine, particularly in light of the current doctrinal controversy in which we'll read about in the following verses. This was important because, of course, Timothy could have gone to um, gone to the church in Ephesus and, you know, and and taught them and instructed them and in some cases even rebuked them for some of the things going on in the church. But of course, they could have turned around and said, you know, on whose authority do you say these things? Well, Timothy would pull out the letter, point to the very introductory comments and say, well, my authority comes through Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul has instructed me to teach you Paul is an apostle of Christ, therefore he carries the the authority of Jesus Christ, and I am his representative here to teach you. And furthermore, Paul has confirmed him as a true son in the faith, one of utmost character, who is able to lead and to instruct the church well. Finally, in the latter part of verse 2, we see a blessing that Paul pronounces a typical kind of blessing that we see uh, in other of the Paul's writings. Paul writes, grace, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. The blessing here invoked by Paul in verse 2 occurs regularly, minus sometimes the word mercy isn't included. Oftentimes it just says grace and peace. But here Paul includes the, the idea of mercy. We too, as children of God, have the privilege of invoking God to demonstrate his grace and mercy and peace upon his children. Perhaps we don't do that often, although pastor at the end of a service will often say that. And uh, I think it, we do well to follow that example when we are gathered together or perhaps when you're in the home of a fellow brother to invoke God to, to uh, demonstrate his grace, mercy, and peace upon that brother or sister in the Lord. 
that kind of, of invoking of a blessing is honoring to the Lord, and he will answer that. Grace, of course, refers generally to all God's gifts and his loving disposition toward his people, but also refers to the specific kind of grace that he has shown by saving us. Peace describes the one who is at rest in God. We ought to be invoking God to to provide and give his peace to believers and that they would sense his peace. Of course, we have in a kind of uh, in a kind of objective way peace with God through our salvation, but we can also experience uh, his peace once saved. Peace that no matter what is happening around us, peace that no matter how people receive our word, uh, peace no ma- in this in circumstances of trial. In affliction, he is our peace. Mercy, in this instance, denotes God's special care of an individual in need. God loves to show his mercy upon his people. He has shown his mercy upon his people, and he continues to do so. We ought to be following this example, as I said, and seeking and asking that God might demonstrate his grace, mercy, and peace upon those who are following Christ. Now, uh, we, we won't go into any more verses this evening, but what I wanted to do in our time remaining is just to emphasize um, kind of the structure of the letter of 1 Timothy as we begin to look into this passage. And so once after we see here the greeting from Paul, who is an apostle of Christ and the recipient of the letter, Paul goes on to instruct Timothy to stay in Ephesus so that he might uh, teach those who are being unruly in the congregation, those who are teaching false doctrine. And so one of the major emphasis is in uh, in first Timothy is the need for uh, rebuke of those who are teaching uh, false doctrine of course this would have been a daunting task to Timothy one young in the faith perhaps those who are were teaching the false doctrine were much older than he was and so this is why it was so important that Paul sets this kind of groundwork that Timothy is a representative of him and that Paul is commissioning him, charging him to, to instruct them uh, in what is right. This would not have been an easy task, but it is the task of any minister of Christ who wants to be faithful to the word of God. And it is also all of our tasks, whether uh, one serves in the capacity of a pastor or, or teacher, it is all of our responsibility to instruct those who are unruly and who are not heeding uh, pure doctrine. As we continue on and look at the overall kind of structure and themes of the book, of course we get to chapter 2 where Paul exhorts them to pray 
for the lost. We looked at that back in December. And so we begin here to see that Paul is laying out some of the instructions for the church in Ephesus, how they are to, uh, to, uh, how they are to behave themselves, conduct themselves in the church. First and foremost, he talks about praying for the lost. Later in chapter 2, we see that Paul instructs uh, how men and women ought to conduct themselves in the church. And then in chapter 3, we see that Paul instructs uh, on the requirements or qualifications of those who seek the position of a bishop or a pastor. And then he continues on in verse 8 to, um, to lay out the qualifications of deacons. In chapter 4, uh, he speaks of, of Jesus Christ and also uh, the need uh, to beware of those uh, who are speaking false doctrine and deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. As we consider this book as a whole, we see that it is a, a letter for a church who was having its own kind of struggles in false doctrine. And we see that it is written to a young man who was likely uh, very fresh in the ministry. Of course, uh, we see elsewhere that Paul instructs uh, Timothy uh, that no one despise his youth. He must be a person of upstanding character so that his instructions would fall on ears willing to listen. No one wants to listen to someone who says one thing but behaves in a different hypocritical manner. As a person young in the ministry, it was of utmost importance that he have a godly character. As we conclude our time this evening, uh, I just want to pull out perhaps a few helpful applications for us. One is this, although not directly stated here in, in the greeting, it's an implication of this, that the very words of Paul are as if they were the very words of Jesus Christ. Perhaps even this evening you have one of those red-letter Bibles where in the Gospels you see you know, the words of Jesus Christ highlighted in red. And although it's, that's okay, I think at times that has caused us to put too much of an emphasis on the authority of Christ's words in comparison to the rest of Scripture. However, uh, we ought to realize that just as much as the words of Jesus Christ, the words in red, are authoritative, so are the rest of the words inked in the canon of Scripture. Paul is one sent by Jesus Christ. It's like, for instance, if we can draw a comparison between the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles of Christ— there is much commonality between the two. And like we see in the Old Testament, the, or the prophets were receiving the word of God and then proclaiming it so that the very words of the prophets were the very words of God. It's no different in the New Testament. The very words of the apostles of Jesus Christ were the commandments of the Lord. 
A second kind of application for us this evening is this. We already considered it in some sense, but as we look at the person Timothy and how he is identified from the very beginning, we see that he is a true son in the faith. As you live your life in the gathering of the body of Christ and outside, we must make sure that we can be identified through our character as being ones who are true in the faith, sons of God, children of God, children of Abraham in one sense, children in the faith. Furthermore, for those of you who are younger out there, and we have some this evening, let me exhort you and encourage you to follow the example of Timothy. Young, unexperienced in one sense, but full of zeal for the things of God, and recognized as one having that zeal by those older and mature in the faith. Do you have that same kind of zeal? Are you willing to be used, even at your age, and with your experience, to be a minister of Christ Jesus? Will you lay aside the things of this world and be concerned with the matters of Jesus Christ so that God can use you? I pray that's true this evening, and if not, Pray that uh, you'll consider what God has for you even this very evening. And finally, third application, a kind of uh, encouragement is this. The grace and mercy and peace that Paul invoked from God upon Timothy is the same kind of grace and mercy and peace that we experience in our lives. And it comes from the very same God. We can experience his grace. We have experienced it. We have experienced his mercy and peace. And he continues to lavish that upon us. From centuries ago, from the time that this was written until now, God, our Savior, continues to demonstrate his grace, mercy, and peace. And for that, we are thankful. Let's pray in conclusion this evening. Heavenly Father, we've only looked at a few verses this evening. But Lord, um, we recognize that even in these few introductory notes, there is an important aspect being revealed. That these words are your words. They come with authority. They come as the truth. And as we continue our study through this book, may that be at the forefront of our minds. This is your truth. These are your instructions for us. Lord, we thank you that you are our Savior, you are the source of our salvation. And you are the giver of grace and mercy and peace.
And now, Lord, we ask that those here this evening and those who are watching online would experience this week, this very hour, your grace and mercy and peace. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Amen.